This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Thecodontosaurus, and we have our best of 2018. Wow, that came up so quick. It did. There was a lot to cover this year, so it's a little bit of a longer episode, but we really pared it down. It was difficult, but we did limit it to hopefully under two hours when all is said and done. (laughs) Yeah, we had a lot of favorites. Yes. But before we get into our best of, we want to thank some of our patrons, and this week we'd like to thank Scotty, Megan Dixon, Kessler, Tristan Jules, Grandpa Dino, Rhinosaurus, Morgan Eklove, Dr. Eigenbot, Lori, Risa, Kelly, Manda, Laurasaurus, Timmy, and James Pascoe. Thank you so much. As you can tell by our ever-lengthening list, our community is growing and it's amazing. So thank you again. And we hope you enjoy this best of episode. And if you want to join this amazing community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino for special rewards. So jumping right into the best news stories of 2018, we've got the best discovery, which was Ladumahati. And here is Garrett with the news. It's really special because it is a huge sauropodomorph, but it isn't a true sauropod. So it doesn't have the sort of characteristic legs and neck and tail that you're used to seeing with sauropods like Brontosaurus. It still has the sort of more hand-like hands and arm-like arms that you'd see on a sauropodomorph, but it is enormous. (laughs) Usually the sauropodomorphs are quite a bit smaller than the true sauropods, but not in this case. So they named it Ladumahati, which is a really cool name. And the species name is Mafubi. So it's Ladumahadi Mafubi. That's a fun one. It is a really cool name. And very different. It is, except in some ways it's kind of the same because Ladumahadi is Sesutu for a giant thunderclap. Ooh. Which is just like Brontosaurus, except that Brontosaurus is in Greek for thunder lizard, whereas Ladumahadi is Sesutu, which is the language that they speak in Lesotho and South Africa, or at least one of the, I think, a dozen languages that people speak in South Africa. So yeah, it's a local word, so you can guess where it's from. 
And it weighed about 12 tons, even though it's from the very early Jurassic, which is enormous for a sauropodomorph. And it's by far the largest known dinosaur that existed at the time or any time before it, and therefore is probably the largest land animal that had ever existed at that point in time, which is pretty amazing. Nice. Yeah. So for comparison to Brontosaurus, because that's the obvious comparison to make since it's the other thunder sauropod, <laughs> Brontosaurus only weighed about 14 to 15 tons. So this weighed almost as much at 12 tons. It's a pretty massive dinosaur. But it looked like a sauropodomorph. Yeah. If you only look at the silhouette that they made of it without the scale bar, you would just expect it to be one of the other smaller sauropodomorphs from the early Jurassic or late Triassic. I was just thinking an interesting shape for such a large dinosaur. It is, yeah. Well, it's a little, it's starting to adapt, obviously, to its huge body size. So it's a little bit different. It's definitely quadrupedal. So it doesn't have just like regular arms like some of the sauropodomorphs did. But there were other much smaller sauropodomorphs that were still quadrupedal and have a pretty similar stance. So yeah, it's, it's a really interesting dinosaur. It was found in the Upper Elliot Formation, which is... Like I said, from the very early Jurassic, it's 195 to 200 million years ago, way before Brontosaurus and these other true sauropods started showing up. And it was found in South Africa, not in Lesotho, but it was less than 60 meters or 200 feet from the Lesotho border. It's like right on the border, essentially. And that's basically where the Elliott Formation is. It's like this rocky outcrop that sort of divides Lesotho from South Africa. So there's Lesothosaurus, which is from the same formation, and a lot of other dinosaurs that have been found there as well. That makes sense, too, for the name. Yep, that mm-hmm. is in Lesotho. Lesotho. And the species name, too. Mafubi means dawn. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. That's because, obviously, it's so early for such an enormous dinosaur. So it's like the dawn of the giant monstrosities. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's they, a great name. Yeah, you can combine it and you can have it like dawn thunderclap, which is kind of a cool visual. Like in the morning, you've got like this big thunderstorm and a big dinosaur coming out too. <laughs> or just the steps it takes is like thunder. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the idea with Brontosaurus. The story about how it actually got discovered and how it got published now is kind of interesting. So the bones were actually excavated back in 2001 and put into collections. And so this is one of those discoveries, which is like a partial, somebody finally noticed that they had something cool, but that's not the entire story because what happened was years after 2001, a volunteer was moving the collection and pointed out how huge the bones were to a paleontologist who worked there. And then in 2012, a different paleontologist went back to the quarry and found more bones. And then they went there in 2017, and that's when they found a finger bone, which they weren't even like looking for bones in 2017. The paleontologist was like just kind of showing somebody around. <laughs> and the guy was like, hey, is this an important bone? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's got to be the finger bone from this dinosaur. And the finger bone is what shows that it's really a sauropodomorph and not more of a true sauropod because it has more hand-like hands. So once you see this sort of finger bone and you start to figure out the shape of its hands, you realize, wait a second, this thing weighed 12 tons because we have this <laughs> enormous femur, but it's really more of a sauropodomorph. And yeah, then I guess he got to work on publishing this paper. So in total, in addition to that finger bone, they found eight vertebrae. There's one from the neck, two from the tail, and the rest are from the back. So they got a decent idea about the sort of shape of its 
body plan. But I think since they didn't find more vertebrae, that might be why they didn't give an overall length estimate. They did say that it was probably about four meters or 13 feet tall at the hip, which is pretty tall. It's not it's enormous. It's a lot taller than me. Yeah, <laughs> it's taller than, you know. Most people, actually all people. <laughs> yeah, taller than a lot of things. I think taller than just about, taller than most animals, not taller than a giraffe, but taller than an elephant or anything like that. And that's just the hip. Yes, exactly. So they didn't give the overall height either, but they depict it kind of like a typical sauropodomorph, which means that its neck and its head are in an upward position because they, you know, they have more hand-like hands. So they kind of think of them as sort of reaching up more, not just kind of evolved for putting all that weight on their front limbs. So it was probably much taller and likely taller than a giraffe even. So pretty a large animal, not surprisingly. But unfortunately, the one neck vertebra that they found was the farthest forward bone in the body that they found. They didn't find the skull or any of the associated elements there, like the jaw or the teeth or anything. So we don't know much about what its head looked like, which would be really cool to see because you'd love to know what kind of stuff this dinosaur was eating since it's sort of in between sauropodomorphs and the true sauropods. That would be a really nice piece to the puzzle. But fortunately, they did find several limb bones. They have half of a femur, they have the right ulna, and they have a few left wrist bones, which I think is kind of funny because last week we were talking about a sauropodomorph that was just miraculously only missing the wrist bones. Hmm. And this time it's like that's basically all they found from the hands. So yeah, pretty weird. But like I said, really helpful because it shows the sort of general body type that it had. There's also a really good video that they made about the dinosaur, which is how I figured out how to say the dinosaur. It's usually the only way I can figure out how to say these dinosaurs is if I could find a video of the author actually pronouncing it. Fortunately, that one existed this time. And in it, he shows what he calls a toenail, which is as big as his hand. Uh. <laughs> but really, it's just a, it's more like a claw. Like we talked about, I don't know how many months ago, with a cat. So cats have these claw bones, but then they have the keratin sheath over them. And then sometimes cats will like rip off their keratin sheath and they have these crazy sharp bones. Ooh. So it's the same kind of thing with dinosaurs, especially when you're talking about these claws on their feet, the nail gets much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. So who knows how big this toenail claw so would the, have been. This is the base part, the bone part, right? Not yeah. the keratin. Yeah, because yeah, keratin very rarely fossilizes, so they only have the bone part. So he was like, I don't even know how big <laughs> the claw would be with the keratin sheath over it, you, you know, probably as big as your arm or something. I get a very different image in my head when you say the word claw versus thumbnail yeah it was or toenail he said toenail but i think that was mostly for dramatic effect because it, it's definitely more like a claw birds don't have toenails they have claws right but anyway it is still crazy that either way it's just that little bone part of it which is so huge <laughs> they also looked at the lines of arrested growth or lags in the bone and they found that they're really closely spaced so they know that it was an adult when it died because it's like tree rings <laughs> when they start to get close together they're not growing rapidly anymore and the dinosaur also tells us quite a bit about the transition to quadrupedality because as they put it quote many early branching sauropodomorphs were quadrupeds with flexed limbs end quote and basically 
the way I read that was that it has more of a sprawling posture than an upright posture because when you have flexed limbs, it's kind of like you're in a push-up a little bit. Hmm. And that's the way they draw it too. That's interesting. That's how a lot of early dinosaurs were drawn. Yeah. And then, well, like they used to even depict things like real sauropods, true sauropods mm-hmm. as that sort of sort of crouching way or megalosaurus or a lot of these dinosaurs. Right. I think maybe even triceratops or some of the ceratopsians when they were first discovered. Oh, well, ceratopsians, they still think is a little bit more of a oh, okay. flexed arm position. But yeah, I think because what you assume is that since they're related to lizards, or at least we thought they were with the saurus ending, that they would have a sort of posture like a lizard. But then later on, we found out oh, it's more of a bird thing. And they're actually kind of stand upright, more like mammals. And interestingly, they also say that it's not really a sprawling posture. They like to call it a flexed or a crouched posture because it's more like how small mammals are today and not like how lizards are today. So they're still mostly upright. I think it's more like a pit bull or something where they're, you know, they kind of look like they're doing a little bit of a push up. Their elbows stick out a little bit. That's the sort of posture that they're in, which looks really weird for a 12-ton sauropodomorph because it's like, stand upright, like, come on, how can you do a push-up all day like that? Well, almost anything about a 12-ton sauropodomorph is going to look weird. Yeah, but sometimes you look at it and you're like, well, it's like an elephant, sort of, but it's got a long tail and a long neck. But this thing is quite a bit different. And obviously they consider Ledumahati to be quadrupedal, even though its hands are still very different from its feet. So... Very interesting transition and probably not the transition that eventually led to true sauropods, just because this is now the third time we've seen a dinosaur that's kind of halfway in between bipedal and quadrupedal at different times. So it's hard to say which one actually evolved to true sauropods. But yeah, still a really interesting dinosaur. I'd love to see a really big replica of this thing. The paleoart looks so cool. And it actually is so similar to the way a lot of people imagine giant reptiles looking like you said that it's really interesting dinosaur so it'd fit in with the crystal palace dinosaurs i think it might yeah if they added a sauropod because there's no sauropod in the mix there Mm -hmm. (laughs) they could do like a 2018 reboot of the crystal palace dinosaurs (laughs) and stick one of these in there (laughs) that'd be awesome great job garrett now we're on to the runner-up which you can tell that garrett picked this one about an ankylosaur. You didn't point out that Ledumahati was number one. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this was our runner-up for best new dinosaur discovery. We have a new dinosaur, and it's an ankylosaurine, which are the best kinds of dinosaurs. I don't know about best. You do know. Mm. You can admit it. It's okay. No, I like sauropods. Ankylosaurs are better. So this one <laughs> Disagree, is written by Wenji Zheng and others and published in Scientific Reports. And like I said, it's a new ankylosaur. It's from China, from Jinyun, China, and it's called Jinyun Pelta. You can probably see where this is going. So that means Jinyun Shield. And there are a lot of ankylosaurs that end in Pelta. And Pelta is Latin for a small shield. And they say in this paper that it's in reference to the osteoderms found on all ankylosaurians, which I thought was interesting because I always thought of it as like a shield as in the entire back 
was the shields, but they're specifically saying that it's each individual osteoderm that's like a little pelta shield. So kind of cool. Basically, it's named like all Chinese dinosaurs. You've got Jinyun Pelta as the name of the genus, you know, named after the locality. And then the species name is Sinensis, which means that it's Chinese. So there you go. It's a Chinese dinosaur from a specific part of China. That's what you learn from the name. <laughs> also the shield part. So, you know, it's probably an ankylosaurian. And then I was looking it up because I was like, I'm pretty sure I've seen Sinensis before. And there are a lot of different plant species from China that have the species name Sinensis. And I think there's another dinosaur too, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, me either. It might be in one of our top 10 dinosaur books. Yeah, I don't think it's an Ankylosaurian. I think it was a different kind. But this guy, Jinyun Pelta, was uncovered in 2008 during construction at the Lijin Industrial Park, which is about 200 miles southwest of Shanghai. And they conducted several excavations between 2008 and 2014, which is pretty cool because a lot of times in China, when they discover a new dinosaur, they have like a week to dig it out. Otherwise, construction's moving ahead. But luckily in this case, they had a few years to work on it. I don't know, maybe construction slowed or something and they had a little more time, but that really helped. They said, quote, the 2013 excavation was particularly successful, producing more than five ankylosaurian individuals, though all incomplete. Here we describe two specimens that were collected during the 2013 fieldwork, as the other specimens are still under preparation, end quote. Pretty awesome. So they combined two of the dinosaurs and made this Jinyun Pelta description. So both of those two are assigned to this one one's the holotype and then another one's a paratype basically meaning that it's you know the same genus but it's not the actual one that in the future you have to name one individual to compare future finds to so that it's always referencing one individual so you can compare it because it, there's potential that later on someone will say oh that other one that you thought was genuine pelta is something else so you have to pick one <laughs> as the actual definition of genuine pelta but in this case, they combined a lot of it for the paper because they were both partial finds. And when you combine them, they had almost a complete skull and tail club, as well as lots of osteoderms and a lot of other stuff that's not usually found, like vertebrae, ribs, a shoulder blade, part of a hand, some leg bones and hip bones. So That's a lot. Yeah, it's pretty, especially for an ankylosaur, it's a good find there. And then with the tail club, they had both the handle and the knob. You know, you've got the stiff part of the tail and then the big club on the end of it. When you add that whole length up, it was 131 centimeters or 4.3 feet long. And the knob itself, the club at the end, was 43 by 46 by 9 centimeters or 17 by 18 by 3.5 inches, which... The way I imagine this combination is like a 17 or 18 inch rim of a car <laughs> that's a little bit thinner than a car rim. It's only three and a half inches deep and then made of solid bone attached roughly to the tip of the end of a baseball bat. That would be like the size of this thing. And then we don't know, but it could be that the end of the knob could have been covered in keratin or something too. So it could have even been a little bit bigger. So that's a pretty formidable weapon if you can imagine something swinging that at a decent speed. 
Actually, Jinyun Pelta is relatively small for an ankylosaur. It's only three and a half meters or 11 feet long, so about a third of its length <laughs> is this tail club. It's pretty awesome. Must be a powerful tail. Yeah. And if you're wondering how big it is compared to other ankylosaurs, this guy's about half the length of Ankylosaurus. So, yeah, quite a bit smaller. It's officially, according to the writers of the paper at least, the oldest ankylosaur with a quote-unquote well-developed tail club knob. Meaning that that big club at the end of the tail is, you know, basically large enough <laughs> to be considered well-developed. And that makes it an ankylosaurid. And more specifically... It is in Ankylosaurinae, which is the group that includes Ankylosaurus, also known as the best group of Ankylosaurs. <laughs> it's not the oldest Ankylosaurine. According to the authors, Crichtonopelta, without a tail club knob, is just a tiny bit older. And this one's about 100 million years old. So they're saying that these big tail clubs evolved at least 100 million years ago. Which is a huge change from what we thought before. Previously, the earliest known was about 20 million years later. So it pushes it back a good chunk of that Cretaceous period. It's also, they say, the first definitive ankylosaurid dinosaur from southern China. In other words, like the first tail club that's ever been found in southern China. So that's pretty awesome. And I really want to know what the other three ankylosaurs are. So hopefully that paper comes out soon too, because I'm very anxious to find out. <laughs> <laughs> and now on to the next category, best listener question, which came from Keegan. Moving on to some questions that we've gotten, which we haven't answered because we've been busy with SVP. First up was a question by Keegan where he asked, what species of modern bird is the closest living relative of theropods or more specifically raptors? So to phrase that in cladistics, it's basically the question of which modern bird is the closest to the base of Aviale, which is the group that diverged from Dromaeosaurs, at least that's how I'm going to phrase it. And in other words, what is the least branches from the base of Aves in a cladogram? So if you look at a sort of cladogram of modern birds, how many little nodes of significant evolutions happened? before getting to the modern bird from that base of the family tree. Unfortunately, there's not a very great consensus about this because we're finding new birds all the time and there are so many birds and we're missing so many key fossils. But there was one really good cladogram called A Comprehensive Phylogeny of Birds, Aves Using Targeted Next Generation DNA Sequencing by Richard O. Prum and others, which was published in Nature a couple years ago. And they have very large overlapping error bars, but in it, Struthio camellus, aka the ostrich, came out the closest on their analysis, meaning with the fewest major evolutions. And kind of makes sense. They're also called paleonaths or old jaws, and they have a lot of sort of basal bird-like traits. Some others in that same group are rias, kiwis, emus, and cassowaries. So those would all be relatively close in terms of modern birds to dinosaurs, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. But really, there was a ton of differentiation that happened right after the mass extinction 66 million years ago. So there was a lot of changes right away, and modern birds are quite a bit different than extinct dinosaurs. And now on to the most controversial paper of 2018, which was a difficult one to pick. Yeah, there were a few papers that made waves, but 
the Spinosaurus and its lack of swimming ability definitely upset a lot of people, especially people who've been drawing Spinosaurus swimming for a while. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There was a big new article published all about Spinosaurus and how aquatic it is, which has already sort of made some waves. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, Didn't get that. (laughs) Yeah. So the paper sought to model just how Spinosaurus would move in the water and how aquatic it could have been. And they point out that there's a limitation that there aren't any complete Spinosaurus skeletons. So it's based on several individuals from all over the place, different sizes, and then the bones had to be scaled so that you could actually do this kind of model because we don't find really enough Spinosaurus material to do a real rigorous model on one individual, unfortunately. So first, what Don Henderson did, he's the one who wrote this article, and it was in Pure J, by the way, he made a complete 3D model of a Spinosaurus, including the density of the whole body. We've seen this more and more lately with better computer models. So he included stuff like air sacs and lungs, and that way you kind of have a better idea of the density of the animal, which is important when you're looking at things floating in water. So one of the pros from his model in terms of it being aquatic was that it could float and its head would have stayed above water all the time, pretty much. So that's a good thing. You kind of need that if you're going to be a... A semi-aquatic animal? Yeah, if you're going to yeah be breathing air and swimming. But there are quite a few cons. First, it was laterally unstable, which means that it would tend to roll onto its side. And it's it's kind of obvious when you think about the body shape of something like an alligator versus a spinosaurus so it's that real tall slender body shape versus a wider more stable looking body shape for the water and technically the reason that this happens is the center of mass is above the metacentric height it's called in other words the center of mass is above where it should be based on where the buoyancy kind of centers the weight. You can think of it like putting too much weight high up in a boat or like trying to stand in a canoe or something. When the weight is really high above that sort of pivoting point in the water, then the whole thing wants to go topsy-turvy. And that's what happened in their models. They they basically tested tipping (laughs) a Spinosaurus, like you have it floating vertically and then you poke it digitally and you see if it flips over and every time they tipped it it would end up sideways <laughs> so it's like a, a boat that's unstable and the canoe just tips sideways because there's too much weight too high up and it also made me think it's a lot like borealopelta they did a similar model with ankylosaurs where they were like why do all these ankylosaurs always end up upside down when they fossilize and they found the same exact thing with all the armor on an ankylosaur's back That center of mass was too high in the water when it was upright, so it wanted to flip upside down. It's the exact same thing. And funny enough, the author, Don Henderson, also worked on Borealopelta. Maybe maybe that's that's, how he got the idea. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. They tried making the bones more dense to see like, oh, maybe if we made the leg bones really dense, that would bring the center of mass down. But it really only added like a few kilograms to the mass of this huge animal, so it, it didn't really affect anything. And then just as a thought experiment, I was thinking like, well, what if it is unstable, but it could kind of counteract that with some of its limbs, like it could just kind of paddle sideways or something. But when you look at the overhead view and the side view of the Spinosaurus, you realize it doesn't really have the kind of limbs you would want to sort of right itself. 
So it's like too short. Yeah. Well, they they just don't go in the right directions. So like the tail is behind it. So that's not going to help you really from tipping over. You could try to bend it from side to side constantly to try to <laughs> not tip in that direction. But that's not really that great. And its arms are kind of small relative to the side of its body. It doesn't have like big flippers that it could use like a penguin or something to kind of just like stick one flipper out and move it a little bit. It would have to kind of flail constantly, it seems like. So yeah, it seems pretty unstable. Another con that they found was that its air sacs made it "quote unquote" unsinkable. So, <laughs> it's like an. Is it the Titanic? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But really, what it's more like is like a raft. So it's so full of air that it couldn't sink, and it couldn't pursue underwater prey because of that, which makes it seem like it's probably not swimming around looking for fish. If it has to splash around to right itself too, that's not very stealthy. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I mean. We've seen some paleo art recently of Spinosaurus completely submerged, and they're basically saying, nope, that's not going to happen. And they even tried deflating the lungs in the air sac of Spinosaurus to see, like, well, what if it just exhaled 75% of its breath? Could it then get underwater? And it, they still couldn't get it to sink. So that's not a great sign. And when they compared that in their model to alligators, they saw the alligators sank at about 40 to 50% of an exhalation then it would be all the way fully submerged. So other animals can do this, just not Spinosaurus. So the paper also took a look at its terrestrial abilities because obviously if you're going to say, well, it's not very competent in the water, it would help to say how competent it was on land. So they compared its center of mass to Coelophysis, Allosaurus, T-Rex, Struthiomimus, and Baryonyx, and... In their paper, it's kind of funny because what we usually refer to as Suchomimus tenorensis, they refer to as Baryonyx tenorensis, saying that Suchomimus isn't distinct enough from Baryonyx to be considered its own genus, which has been suggested previously, and they're just kind of reasserting that belief. They're both from pretty partial remains, so we've I think we talked about that in an interview not too long ago, that really spinosaurs are pretty poorly known, so it's hard to erect these new genus when you find the tip of one skull and the back part of a different skull <laughs> and you just kind of assume that they're going to be different. It's not a great place to start. But anyway, the reason that they were looking at the center of mass of these different animals is when you're looking at an animal walking on land, you want to see where its center of mass is so that you know which limbs it needs to use. So since we're talking dinosaurs, they're all kind of horizontal. So if their center of mass is right in between their legs, basically over their hips, then it can walk using just its legs, its hind legs. But if you do something like a sauropod, you're going to see its center of mass kind of in between its hind legs and its front legs. And then you think, okay, it must be using all four legs because there's no way that it could balance on just its back legs. Its center of mass is too far forward. When they did their analysis, what they found was that on all of these animals, the center of mass was just a little bit in front of the hips but it's still in between where the legs would touch on the ground. So if you think of kind of like a ladder and you need to keep the, the weight when you're on a ladder in between <laughs> the supports of the ladder, because if you go past to one side, then the ladder will tip over. It's still within the frame of the ladder. It's just not dead center in the middle. So all of them, they said, Coelophysis, Allosaurus, Baryonyx, T-Rex, Druthiomimus, and Spinosaurus could all just walk on their two legs and would have been pretty good at it. 
So Spinosaurus may have beaten T-Rex in that fight? No. No. That's, that's not what they're saying. <laughs> they're saying that... But it's it, more plausible that it could have even fought on land. Well, yeah, it could have walked at least. They didn't talk at all about its biting force or anything like that, yeah. which I think is the biggest issue for that battle. But you're right. It would have been potentially more terrestrial and not just like hiding out underwater, which I guess in Jurassic Park 3, it probably couldn't have snuck up on them from below the water like they did. Oh, true. Oh, when they did these models too, they also found that all of the other animals they tested would have also floated and kept their head above water. So that's not something special to Spinosaurus. It's just kind of something that they say pretty much all terrestrial vertebrates can do. It's just kind of how lungs help you out. They keep your head above water. They didn't talk much about the skull, but they do reference some other articles. They did a good job of reviewing a lot of the previous literature. The skull does really seem to be pretty well geared towards eating fish or being a piscivore. So it's got the pointy teeth for slippery fish, doesn't have serrations for tearing flesh, and it also has long jaws, more like a gharial, doesn't have that powerful skull like a T-Rex that you would use for crushing bone or something like that. But its body looks more like a typical theropod. So, you know, the kind of thing that you see walking on two legs. And a lot of people have mentioned that as a disconnect before, like, why does it have this land living body and aquatic type head? It's very strange. And just like all these previous conclusions, they ended up with the same thing, which is it was probably on the shore or in shallow water most of the time. And then, you know, trying to eat fish without really getting its whole body in the water. But it could have walked around on land and also eaten land animals if it needed to. One thing that I think is interesting about this is it's definitely going to spur a bunch of debate and people are going to start talking about, well, was Spinosaurus semi-aquatic? And so I started looking into sort of the definition of semi-aquatic and it includes an incredibly wide range. So at the most water living end, you've got animals like sea turtles that basically only come on land to breed. And that's it. They spend 99.999% of their life in the water, and then they pop out for one event in their life. <laughs> Maybe if they're male, it's just swimming into the water that first time, and that's it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got things like the crab-eating macaque, which only goes into the water to eat once in a while, because even crab-eating macaques only eat crabs occasionally. They mostly eat fruit, hmm. but they're considered semi-aquatic because... They at least partially go into the water to eat once in a while. What about humans then? They, actually, this article, I was looking at a list on Wikipedia of just tons of mammals. And one of them, one of the footnotes was basically like, some people say that certain groups of humans are semi-aquatic <laughs> because there are, I guess, some like tribes of people that live on islands that eat a lot of fish and mm -hmm. they free dive. So they, you know, just kind of jump off the shore or whatever and they dive down to the bottom of the water and grab a lobster or a fish or something huh. and eat that it's like that could be considered semi-aquatic because they're going into the water to get food sure oh okay you have to be fully in the water so if you're just swimming that doesn't count no that would count but you'd have to like do it for a purpose of like living i don't think just like crossing a stream or swimming across something counts as being semi-aquatic yeah that's like <laughs> there isn't a good example in the animal kingdom for a sort of leisurely activities <laughs> yeah, in the water exactly yeah. <laughs> but they did talk about like bats so like there are some bats 
that mostly eat fish, but they don't really go in the water. They just fly over the water and snatch them out of the water. So that is considered semi-aquatic because you're eating these fish. Oh, birds do that too. Yep. Some birds count as semi-aquatic. And then within birds, there's a whole range too. You got penguins, which are in water a ton of the time. Mm -hmm. And then things like flamingos that just stand in the water, but pluck out shrimp or whatever they eat. Mm -hmm. And then things like hawks, certain hawks that just snatch fish out of the water. So semi-aquatic is very broad. And it's really a question of how aquatic was the semi-aquatic spinosaurus because its head looking at its head it's like it was eating fish it's just like there's no way you go from the ancestral theropod teeth of serrated to these fish eating teeth without eating fish it's just and i think we even have gut contents that include a couple fish scales Mm. so (laughs) yeah but they also found i believe a terrestrial animal like some sort of juvenile dinosaur or pterosaur or something in the gut contents of a spinosaur so but nothing's ever like purely that could have just been scavenged exactly like everything will scavenge if it gets the right opportunity so yeah long story short spinosaurus probably just hanging out on the beach or the the coast sticking its head in the water trying to snag fish most of the time like a pelican Mm. mean, totally different mouth but Kind of, but pelicans actually kind of have to go into the water a little bit more because they scoop it up. Oh, like a bear, but totally different. I think it's mostly like an alligator or gharial, but they're kind of reversed. Rather than being mostly in the water, they're mostly on the land. And now one of my favorites, the best dinosaur food study, which came out of SVP of this year. Up next was a very popular talk by Frieder, and they talked basically about whether or not raptors hunted in packs, which is a very popular topic, especially among Jurassic Park enthusiasts. So they looked at Deinonychus and Tenontosaurus specimens primarily for this. And you might think, why Tenontosaurus? Well, that's because raptors appeared to eat a lot of Tenontosaurus. So it's useful to look at the prey as well as the predators. There have been fossils known for a long time of sort of bone beds of raptors that appear that they were in a group because they're all buried together. But later they found that one of the raptors was killed by intraspecific combat. And at first that might make you think, okay, well, they probably weren't hunting together if all of a sudden one of them's turning around and eating the other one. But apparently in animals that hunt together, this isn't all that uncommon. He points out that social animals do sometimes kill each other as we may know from being humans. So (laughs) that's not necessarily evidence that they were or weren't hunting together. But there are a lot of benefits to hunting together, even if you do occasionally eat each other. You can get bigger prey, you have higher success rates, you tend to have shorter hunts, you get increased yield from the hunts, basically because they're more successful. And on top of that, you can protect the thing that you ate or are trying to eat from other predators. So something else isn't going to come up and try to scare you away if there's a whole bunch of you potentially. And on top of that, outside a little bit of the social behavior is just protecting the young. So you have more likely to have successful offspring if you're feeding them rather than just kind of ditching them sauropod style. (laughs) But obviously not all animals do all of these things together there's a spectrum of pack hunting. So the most advanced type of pack hunting is called cooperation. And that's something that we see with cetaceans, in particular killer whales or orcas, which do something called wave washing. 
And that's where they sort of all swim in a formation at a little ice flow with a seal on it, for example, and they'll make a wave artificially go up over the thing and wash the seal off to hunt it. And it's really important because they have to be very well coordinated in order to do this because if any of them are swimming in a different way, then they're not going to make the wave that they're going for. So they have to be cooperating very effectively for this to work. But then there are lesser forms of, there are more simple forms of pack hunting called coordination synchrony, similarity, and just passive, which can also result in some of these advantages, but may not have the same level of intelligence. So even if we find that they were hunting together, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're hunting together and communicating and doing all sorts of complex behaviors. They might be doing something else. So for example, people have proposed that maybe they hunted like a Komodo dragon, which is described as an agonistic species, which are aggressive to one another. They practice cannibalism, which is also common in lions, chimps, wolves, killer whales, and capuchin monkeys, apparently. I didn't realize they were all cannibals, sometimes at least. <laughs> and we could test to see if they're like Komodo dragons based on whether they are eating the same thing, basically, because young Komodo dragons are arboreal. So they eat insects and then later they become terrestrial. So if there's this ontogenetic niche partitioning, we would see changes in their diet over time. And one way to check that is the carbon-13 isotopes in their fossils. So what we see in Komodo dragons is that the carbon-13 changes over time for these non-social crocodilians, for example, because they're eating different things. So when they're young, they're eating fish, and then as they get older, they start to eat larger prey, and they have different ratios of this carbon in their body. On the contrary, though, we see that social mammals are nearly constant. There's a very slight change in social mammals when they're nursing, because milk has a slightly different carbon ratio than they get from other sources, but obviously dinosaurs didn't nurse, so we would expect to see a really flat level of carbon in dinosaurs if they were pack hunting and they weren't doing this weird ontogenetic partitioning like we see in Komodo dragons. So what they did is they took a bunch of Deinonychus specimens from the cloverleaf formation and the antlers formation, and they looked at how their carbon-13 ratios compared to goniofolidid fossils from the same place, and those are crocodilians. So we expect crocodilians to have the same change as modern crocodiles, and that's exactly what they found. So you see that same sort of change in diet because they're not hunting together. So when they're young, they can only hunt certain size of prey, and as they get bigger, they can hunt something larger, and their carbon-13 isotope changes. And they found the exact same thing in Deinonychus. It looks almost exactly the same. But there's a little bit less data, so you don't get as nice of a curve as you do with crocodilians, but it just looks like you'd expect it to look. They're eating different things when they're young and different things when they're older because they can't hunt the larger things by themselves, and they're not hunting in packs. Then what they did, just to be very thorough about it, is they looked at the Tenontosaurus to see if the prey is different. So maybe one hypothesis could be that, well, young Tenontosaurus have a different carbon ratio than the adults. And then so if the young ones are eating the young Tenontosaurus and the old ones are eating the old Tenontosaurus, but they're hunting together and it's like they're just training the young ones to hunt on the younger animals, then you'd still see it. But 
Tenontosaurus looks pretty much the same. So we've not, we're not seeing a big difference there. So it doesn't look like there's any evidence of them eating the young versus the old. And there's also no evidence that the young dromaeosaurs were like up in trees or doing something totally different in terms of spatial separation the way Komodos do. So the simplest answer is that they were probably just asocial, probably hunted on their own, just like we see with most dinosaurs in all of our current depictions. So unfortunately, the best evidence now seems to show that Deinonychus probably was not a pack hunter. And from that, you'd extrapolate that other raptors probably weren't either, unless we find something else new. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now back into our best of 2018, We've got the best biomechanical study. This article was published in Current Biology by Angelica Torices and others, including Victoria Arbor, obviously. And basically what they did was they know that predators often have to get their prey into smaller pieces. And that's because a lot of times you can't swallow an animal whole. It's just a fact of life for predators. <laughs> Except for the predators that eat fish they seem to swallow those whole yeah more that's often. true i think part of that has to do with their teeth too because they need the teeth for catching the fish mm -hmm. and those teeth aren't great for breaking fish into pieces also it might be kind of hard to chew underwater anyway <laughs> tangent <laughs> we, we digress so if an animal has teeth then there are kind of a few different methods that they can use and obviously 
in only rare cases do you have something like a t-rex that can actually digest bone so a lot of times they're not just chopping through it and eating the bone so we're gonna disregard that crazy t-rex monster for now <laughs> so victoria on her blog showed a couple of cool videos she had one of hyenas feeding and really it reminded me a lot of playing tug of war with a dog if you've ever done that if you hold something out to a dog and it bites on one side and you pull on the other side it twists it tries to twist it out of your hand and that's really how they chew in the wild too they sort of use this twisting motion to dig some of their teeth into the animal and rip with a twisting motion violent yeah and then another one, this one wasn't on her site, but I I've always find it fascinating, is the way that alligators eat. They basically bite and then sort of spin in a death roll, or sometimes they just forcefully fling their prey. There are all these videos of alligators that bite onto something and then just whip their head so hard that most of the animal goes flying either into the river or onto the bank of the river, and then they have the bite-sized piece remaining in their mouth and they can swallow that. And that's all they eat? Well, then they go back and okay. they try to get it. But if there are other alligators around, they'll come chomp on the full thing and then they sure. end up fighting over it and stuff. It's yeah, a pretty fascinating way to eat. In this case, though, the most relevant one is the way that Komodo dragons eat. The feeding frenzy? No, oh. not that one. <laughs> the way that we mentioned it last week, which is the bite and pull. So we mentioned last week that there were these sort of markings and wear patterns on the bone of that T-Rex foot that got defleshed, if you remember, and there were sort of lines caused by the denticles scraping along the toe bone, or really the midfoot bone. But in this case, they looked at wear patterns on the teeth themselves to look for which way that the meat was being pulled and bitten. So rather than being at the millimeter scale, which you're at when you're looking at things like scrapes in a foot bone for denticles, they were at the micrometer scale looking for little tiny scratches in the teeth that show which way the meat was scraping up against the teeth. It's a really interesting idea and it seemed to work pretty well. So they looked at a troodon, a dromaeosaurus, a saurornithalestes, and a gorgosaurus and they compared the different sort of wear marks and the directions of them to figure out how they were biting and otherwise, you know, chewing off pieces of their prey that they couldn't swallow whole. Interestingly, these dinosaurs have relatively different shapes of their denticles. And the denticles are those little serrations on their teeth, and the denticles are also different sizes. But they found that the scratches were pretty consistent. There was one set of scratches that sort of run along the side of the tooth. So if you drew a tooth, like I could only draw, you know, just like the silhouette, that sort of V shape. It would be sort of a concentric V, for lack of a better word, sort of along that V line, along the edges of the tooth, sort of parallel to the main surface of the tooth. And then there are also some that are oblique that sort of go in towards the tooth. And what they did was they compared these markings using some fancy analyses and they determined that the same conclusion as the paper we talked about last week, that they were using a puncture and pull methodology. Basically, what that means is you bite down and then you use your whole neck and head and everything to just pull straight back until you rip off a chunk. Sounds like a lot of force. Yes, but not a lot of force on the jaw. Turns out this doesn't require much jaw muscle effort 
but it obviously requires quite a bit of body effort. And I guess you could even get your legs into it, you know, because as long as you're pulling backwards, it doesn't matter what part of your body you're using. You just clamp down and move backwards. And if you have serrated teeth, it seems like a pretty good way to go. They also think that the lack of pitting on the teeth support the hypothesis. Essentially, if an animal gnaws on bones, <laughs> it tends to get sort of these little tiny holes in their teeth. So you could see that in something like a, I think a hyena might even have that where they're sort of chewing on the bone. But you don't see that in any of the dinosaurs that they looked at. They do say though, at least Victoria did in her blog post, that T-Rex is well known to eat bone and doesn't seem to have these pits either, which seems like a pretty big flaw. It's like the number one bone eating dinosaur doesn't have these holes. Do you really expect them in any dinosaur at that point? And a lot of that's probably because teeth are constantly being replaced in dinosaurs. So what does it's it nice. even matter? Don't yeah. have to worry. Oh man, it'd just be wonderful. I wish I had teeth that were constantly being replaced and I wish that I had feathers. Those are the two things I'm most jealous of dinosaurs for. You would look so weird. <laughs> yes, I know. I would have a horrible smile <laughs> <laughs> and I'd look like a monster, but <laughs> I wouldn't have to worry about sunscreen and I wouldn't have to worry about braces or brushing my teeth. So there we go. Who gets the last laugh? Answer me that. Me. Not me. <laughs> yeah, not you. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, they mentioned that troodontid teeth were the most fragile of the group because this included a sort of force analysis. So they likely had to go after softer prey or prey that struggled less because otherwise they might wind up with broken teeth. And I think in the past, we've mentioned that troodonts seem to have a little bit more fragile teeth. They have huge hooked identicals though. They look like really gnarly teeth, but apparently not the most robust. So there we go. If you ever want to do paleo art of a dinosaur eating, make sure it's doing the puncture and pull sort of biting and not some other sort of feeding mechanism. Once you're a T-Rex, then you can just chomp. <laughs> That's true. You can do whatever you want if you're a T-Rex. <laughs> just swallow a leg hole. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they don't exist anymore. <laughs> Me too. Swallow a human hole, really. And now moving on to the best paleopathology study, which when I was re-listening to it made me shudder again. <laughs> yeah, paleopathologies, even though they were a long time ago, are still pretty gnarly. And up next, we've got an article from Paludicola, I think, by Ryan Clayton. And what he looked at was a new dinosaur paleopathology, or basically injury, which a lot of people I know like to hear about. So this one was on a Diplodocus, and this Diplodocus specimen was found near Thermopolis, Wyoming. And basically it has an injured hip, which, quote, shows signs of possibly being purulent, which I had not read the word purulent before, but it means pus-filled. That's a much nicer <laughs> way of saying it. Yeah. Also, ouch. Yeah, you don't want that going on in your hip. It's the first Diplodocus injured hip, which has been reported. And they're uncertain of the cause, although they said, quote, one can speculate that a fall or stomp from another animal could be responsible for the injury. Ooh. I guess that's the kind of ways you might injure a hip. It's hard to, like, fracture a hip. You've got to take a pretty good fall or a pretty hard impact in order to get injured like that so those are probably the better causes you could expect and i think they said it was partially healed if it became pus filled obviously that's 
Oh, that sounds so painful. Yeah, but it wouldn't have died immediately, you know, because he wouldn't have gotten to that phase. Ah, but the poor Diplodocus. Yeah, not great. And <laughs> they mentioned too that there have been these theories in the past that Diplodocus might have been able to rear, but they think... Not that one. Yeah, exactly. They don't think this one could have anymore. And that might have limited its ability to eat or otherwise stay alive. Oh, harsh. Harsh yeah. times. Yeah, you don't want a broken hip. It's not good. You can't go on bed rest for a few weeks <laughs> in a cast if you're a Diplodocus. You just got to deal with it, I guess. Try to walk around anyway. Well, it couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it could, but it definitely couldn't rear. Yeah. That's rough. That is rough. And moving on to healthy dinosaurs, we've got the best new track site of the year. There's a new article in Nature Scientific Reports by Ray Stanford and others, and it's all about footprints that were uncovered near NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Yeah, all the headlines were something like, dinosaurs found in NASA's backyard. Yeah, and in this case, NASA's backyard is near Washington, D.C. in Maryland, and luckily, they stumbled onto these dinosaur tracks before the area was ripped up for a new office building, which was planned to happen. The trackway was really small, and so they could actually just excavate the whole thing. It's not like some of these big sauropod trackways we talk about that are, you know, hundreds of feet long. This one was only about two square meters or about 20 square feet total. Mm. So I think it was less than nine feet long. So it's Won't slow down that office building then. Nope. <laughs> But even though it was so small, it still had a lot of tracks in it. It had about 70 tracks, in fact, which is a crazy number, including a sauropod print, an adult notosaur print, several notosaur baby prints, several sets of theropod tracks, pterosaur prints, and a pterosaur beak mark, <laughs> potentially, one possible crocodilian print, and a whole bunch of mammalian prints. In fact, it's the second largest number of mammalian prints in any Mesozoic trackway ever found. So all the mammalian people got really excited about this trackway, even more than the dinosaur people. <laughs> <laughs> One of the mammalian prints is really interesting because the lead author, Stanford, thinks that some of them look like a squirrel sitting in a way like you would expect a modern squirrel to sit while it's eating a nut. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of got its feet parallel and it looked like it was moving relatively slowly. And that print actually got a new ichnotaxa named after it. So basically a new species based on the print itself. And they call it Sideroripes godardensis, which sedere is Latin for to be in a sitting position. <laughs> so that makes sense. And then obviously Goddard is for the NASA site. In this big fossilized slab, it isn't just dinosaur tracks and mammal tracks and potentially pterosaur tracks and beak mark. They also found coprolite or fossilized poop. They don't know which one might have pooped it though, as well <laughs> as an invertebrate fossil that looks like a worm or a larva and possibly a notosaur osteoderm, which I thought was pretty weird because none of the other stuff was from a dead animal. But are, are notosaurs just popping off osteoderms while they're walking around? That seems really <laughs> weird. Maybe something bit it off. <laughs> yeah, I guess that could be. There wasn't, I mean, unless it was the sauropod or, or something, <laughs> there wasn't anything in the trackway that would have messed with it. 
All the, I didn't mention it, but the Notosaur and the Sauropod tracks are both obviously pretty large, but all the other tracks, the Mammalian and the Theropod tracks, are way smaller. So they're basically the size of like a big bird, like maybe a seagull-sized animal or something. Maybe even smaller. I don't know. Pretty small dinosaurs. Wouldn't expect to be messing with a Notosaur. But, you know, this is only a 20-square-foot area, so maybe there's something off to the side chomping on it. I don't know. And that possible osteoderm was at the very edge. So maybe there was some huge predator right off the edge chomping at it. I don't know. One of the really cool things about it is that none of the tracks overlap, which they think might mean that they were all laid down right around the same time because maybe they were avoiding one another or avoiding each other's tracks. And they also propose that it might show that dinosaurs were hunting the mammals. Hmm. That's because the multiple theropod tracks are roughly parallel. They do kind of lead towards each other in a way a little bit, but they're going in the same direction as the mammal. So maybe these were theropods hunting that mammal. Interesting. Yeah. With a pterosaur, it could be that it snatched something out of the ground with its beak and then pushed off to fly away because the print looks like it might be a pushing off print. Also really interesting. The preservation of all the fossils is also really amazing. They almost look fake. You can clearly see all of the digits in most cases. And when I was looking at it, I thought that it was all highlighted for my convenience. <laughs> so I, I took a closer look, and I think that's actually the way that most of the tracks were preserved. Maybe some of them were prepared out a little bit so that you could see a little bit more of the track than may have been initially obvious, but they're really cool looking. They think that they were preserved so well because... It was in a riverbed, and riverbeds can often be quickly buried. So maybe that's what happened in this case, that they all, all these dinosaurs and mammals and pterosaurs and crocodile and everything <laughs> were walking around right around the same time, and then it quickly got buried right after they were out of the area. They also mentioned in one of the articles about this that they used radar to look for other sandstone underground in the area because they were planning on making this big commercial building. But when they dug up the other stuff, they didn't find anything notable. Well, that's kind of cool that they could poke around underground Jurassic Park style yeah. <laughs> looking for other fossils. Apparently, they put a replica of the fossil in Goddard's Earth Science Building, but I'm not sure about the public access to that, if you can just walk in and see it, or if you have to be like a NASA employee or something. I think they said it was in the atrium, so maybe you could just go in and look at it and then leave before they get upset with you for being somewhere you shouldn't be. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Don't take our word on that. <laughs> we have no idea. I don't know, yeah. <laughs> We have the best extinction paper that came out in 2018. Up next, we've got an article that Chris sent to us on Twitter, so thanks. And this one is also a little bit about birds. It's basically asking why some dinosaurs and not others survived the end Cretaceous extinction. And it was published in Current Biology and written by Daniel Field and others. And really, the way they started is by saying that the Chicxulub impact wiped out so much of the forests. They say it triggered widespread destruction of forests, <laughs> including both an impact blast, meaning right around the impact, that leveled trees within a radius of about 1,500 kilometers or almost 1,000 miles. 
So that's just like this sheer pressure wave caused by the impact of the meteor or asteroid a, a thousand miles away. That's how powerful this blast of air was. And then they also said that it likely caused worldwide forest fires, which we've talked about before. Basically, when the asteroid hit and shot all this material up into the upper atmosphere, it would have moved around the Earth, and then when it rained back down, it would have condensed and solidified, which releases a lot of heat, and that could have burst all the forests all over the world into flame. And then you have these widespread forest fires that launch all sorts of sulfur and ash and things like that into the upper atmosphere and we've talked about before that that causes many years of really drastic cooling which means much less light for photosynthesis and obviously a much different climate that a lot of plants can't grow and if you've ever had a garden you know you need to be in the right zone in order to grow certain types of plants so that all means that the forests were pretty much completely wiped out by the Chicxulub impact and the reason that's important is that a lot of birds at the time lived in trees. And if all of your houses get destroyed, you're not going to survive very effectively. Yeah. Sounds like a rough time. Yeah, for the tree-dwelling birds at least. And they say that it took about a thousand years for the forest to recover. Obviously, that would be many generations of these birds. So it's likely that they just went extinct because they didn't have anywhere to live. They found that there were ferns everywhere for about a thousand years, and they described ferns as disaster flora, which basically means that they can recolonize a totally decimated area. So in this case, the forest gets completely wiped out, and the first thing to come back is ferns. <laughs> They're just really robust and good at living in all sorts of environments. And then it took a long time for the forest to redevelop on top of that. They kind of set the stage, but it still takes a long time. Once the trees are reestablished, birds can move back into the trees and other animals and then kind of start radiating again that way. But that appears to have taken at least a million years for the birds to kind of get back up into the trees after all the tree-dwelling birds got wiped out. And it kind of explains why some of the dinosaurs survived and others didn't. It's still it's kind of interesting to me, though, because there were a lot of dinosaurs that weren't birds that lived on land that also got wiped out. So it doesn't really do too much to explain why some of the smaller non-avian dinosaurs died out. Maybe their food sources died out. Yeah, I think it might have been that or possibly because they didn't contact incubate their eggs or something like that. But yeah, there was definitely a big collapse of the entire ecosystem. So it's likely that their food source did disappear. Maybe they were eating those tree-dwelling birds. <laughs> yeah, could be. Or their eggs. Yeah. It also makes a lot of sense with modern birds because we often see when certain plants get destroyed that birds can go extinct because they don't have their typical nesting area. And along with a lot of modern birds that are all over the place, like swifts, because they can nest in man-made structures and things that are similar to their natural environment. It's really, really seems like one of the most important things for bird survival is having their sort of natural nesting habitat. Swallows too? Yeah, I think it's swallows like to live in freeway underpasses and in the eaves of houses. <laughs> <laughs> Both things that humans create a ton of, which is why we see so many of those birds now. 
but before humans, they weren't that common. They lived in like caves and cliffs and things. It's a good thing we like them. We like them more than pigeons. Yeah. Oh, that makes me wonder though. I wonder if any cave or cliff dwelling birds would have survived because it seems like that wouldn't have gotten wiped out by the massive forest fires. I think it also depends on their food sources. Yeah, I guess. But these authors were specifically talking about the reliance on trees for living in. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at. It's too bad none of the dinosaurs survived. Non-avian. Or maybe it isn't. I don't know. It would have made humans a little less likely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably for the best for yeah. us. <laughs> but now we can genetically engineer them. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> or make them in CGI. I guess. <laughs> and puppets. And now on to the best baby dinosaur discovery. Those are always fun. And we've also got a new Edmontosaurus baby <laughs> that was found in Montana. Baby? Yeah. It was published in JVP by Matthias Wasik and others. One of the researchers is from UC Berkeley, and the specimen is named UCMP128181. So Ooh. maybe it will be on display around here soon. That'd be pretty cool. Hmm. They consider the find to be a late nestling. I guess this was a term that Jack Horner named back when he was looking at Myasaura or something. And that means it's about 14 kilograms. It's a pretty tiny dinosaur. For comparison, a quote-unquote freshly hatched <laughs> hadrosaurid, they estimated would be about one to four kilograms, so it's about ten times that size. And the previous smallest juvenile Edmontosaurus was at the Los Angeles County Museum, weighed about 700 kilograms, obviously much bigger, and a full-sized adult would be about 7,000 kilograms, so a ten times bigger once again. And then in tons, in case you're not familiar with kilograms, an adult would be 7.7 tons, the Los Angeles juvenile would be about 0.77 tons, and then the baby in Berkeley would be about 0.015 tons. Not even really useful to measure it in tons at all. No. <laughs> the researchers say it's the first occurrence of an articulated nestling dinosaur skeleton from the latest Cretaceous also known as late Maastrichtian, of North America. So it's like the oldest baby, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Or youngest baby, I guess. <laughs> youngest old baby. <laughs> it is pretty well preserved. They got pretty much the shoulder through the base of the tail and the top of the foot. So it's sort of, if you imagine like a lot of dinosaurs are, its tail and its head are sort of in a straight line horizontally and then the leg goes down perpendicular and then at the knee it bends straight back and then you cut it off before it gets into the toe bones so they got like that chunk of it kind of a rectangular slab unfortunately that means there aren't any forelimbs but they say the hind limbs appear to be isometric i didn't know what that was so i looked it up it's the opposite of allometric which is how humans grow up and by that, I mean babies have very different proportions to adults, at least in humans. You know, babies, if you scaled up a baby, it would have a huge head <laughs> compared to the rest of its body. Mm -hmm. Whereas adults, you know, we have relatively much smaller heads and, you know, other proportions change as well. But with this Edmontosaurus, it looks like the bones were 
effectively the same size and proportions as the adult. And we've talked about that before with sauropods, how they just look like little tiny adults. Yeah, they do. Which might actually make them less cute because they wouldn't have had like big cute eyes. They just had little eyes matching their little heads and all that kind of stuff. They're still adorable. (laughs) 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 So this Montessori, the reason they were so interested in it is they were trying to either substantiate or negate the theory that baby Edmontosaurus would have run on their hind limbs because that's been proposed in the past. It's also been proposed for sauropods. But they think since the hind limbs look the same in this, you know, barely hatched juvenile, that that means that the body didn't change much throughout its life and it was always set up to be quadrupedal. Like Ducky. I thought Ducky was bipedal. Oh, you're right. Yeah, so not like Ducky. The like opposite Spike. of Ducky. <laughs> or Littlefoot. <laughs> I was thinking because Ducky was a hadrosaur. Yeah, I never knew it was a hadrosaur. Maybe that's why. But Spike and Littlefoot were both quadrupedal, right, when they hatched. So yeah, like those and two. Sarah. Yes, so they would be more isometric, and then they portrayed Ducky as allometric. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And they also followed up by saying that the researchers said that they want to do a biomechanical analysis to sort of demonstrate how it might have walked rather than just looking at proportions. It's really unfortunate they didn't have those forelimbs because that seems like the key. If the forelimbs were underdeveloped or looked different, that's when you would think it was quadrupedal. If the hind limbs look the same, it doesn't seem quite as informative, but... I guess if you look at how the hips are formed, you might be able to, with a biomechanical study, see how, what kind of range of motion it has. Like if it could rear up high enough to even be bipedal or something like that. We'll have to see what they do. But maybe there'll be a baby for us to go look at. That'd be nice. It would be. The fossil isn't that cute, though. That's too bad. We'll use our imaginations. Yeah. Moving on to other bests of the year, we've got best serendipitous moment which I say because we happen to be in Hong Kong to see this T-Rex. It's basically serendipity for us, mm-hmm. not for science in general. So before we get into all our episode stuff, we just got to Hong Kong. We've finished our trip to Taiwan, and we're working our way back to the U.S. via Hong Kong. <laughs> and when we got here, we immediately went to a mall. <laughs> IFC mall, to be specific. Yeah, because they have a T-Rex on display. Yeah, his name's Tad. Stands for the American Dragon. Yeah, and Tad is this 39-foot, 12-meter-long T-Rex, and you can see him only until June 27th. So we got very lucky that we were here in this small window. I think it started on the 7th or something of this month. Yeah, we missed a couple other dinosaur things that either ended right before or right after we got to museums, but we got lucky about this one. And it's, in a, it's usually in a private collection, I think. So it's just kind of on loan to this mall for a month, basically. Yeah, this is the first time Tad's on public display ever. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. It is cool. And there's also a little Edmontosaurus chunk <laughs> to the side. I think it's part of the tail, it looks like, or part of the back. Yeah, and they found them together in South Dakota. And I think there's some teeth marks on it, they say. We couldn't get that close to it, so we couldn't really see, but... I guess we'll take their word for it. Yeah. So the whole exhibit, it's, it's actually an exhibit at a mall. It's called Meet the T-Rex. And IFC Mall and the charity First Initiative Foundation work together to make it. And it's got six stops. Basically, you make a circle around one of the floors of the mall. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly when the other exhibits are open. When we got to the mall, it was about 
10 o'clock at night because it's open 24 7 and the t-rex was still lit up so we got some pictures of it but then we went eight and by the time we got back around 11 basically all the lights in the mall were off <laughs> including the lights on the t-rex and none of we didn't check out the other exhibits beforehand but they were all kind of roped off a little bit yeah and no lights on and stuff but they were very simple basically just little information boards about other plants or animals that lived at the same time some and videos like and i think uh, there's a little bit of ar yeah they said that but it, it seemed like it was just a tv screen in a booth yeah so. well garrett <laughs> made his own ar Oh, yeah. I posted a picture on Instagram of one of the dinosaurs in Jurassic World Alive because you can do the little AR move next to the T-Rex. So that was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. And now on to the best media of 2018. I want to start with the best fiction book, which we think is Bolivar. That was actually published at the end of 2017, but we did get to interview Sean Rubin in 2018. And it's a long interview, so we will just say if you want to listen to it, go over to episode 193. As for the best nonfiction book, we really liked The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Steve Brusati, which came out this year and is in audiobook form, which Garrett really likes. I do. In other media, the best board game we think is the Jurassic Park Danger released by Ravensburger. It's really similar to another board game we have for Jurassic Park 3. We talk about it here, but the gist is you can play as a dinosaur. And last, thanks to Derek who shared this one with us. There's a fun review of a tabletop or board game called Jurassic Park Danger. And reading the review, it actually sounds really similar to Hasbro's Jurassic Park 3 Island Survival Game, one of oh, Garrett's yeah. favorites. That's yeah. a good game. Except Jurassic Park Danger is a Ravensburger game. And this game has a bunch of callbacks to the original Jurassic Park movie, including quotes from characters such as Ray Arnold. They have his line, hold on to your butts <laughs> on the cards. And the, I'm not sure how many people can play, but one person plays as the dinosaurs. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And I like to play as the dinosaurs. There you go. You can be T-Rex, Dilophosaurus, or Velociraptor. Actually, you're all of them, yeah. if it's anything like Jurassic Park 3D Island Survival. Good. Uh, and everyone else plays as the human characters, and then humans have to try to escape the island via helicopter while the dinosaurs have to try to kill the humans. So, yes. That's how you win. And, <laughs> as the dinosaurs, yeah. And the game board, it's set up in a similar way to Settlers of Catan. There's huh. these hexagon-shaped areas that create a circle slash island. Do you actually build the map like you do with Settlers of Catan, or is I, it always the same? I think it's the same. Oh, That's okay. how it looks in the pictures. So you can just move in six directions rather yeah. than just four. That's cool. I think that might be the same as Jurassic Park 3, too. That had different areas on the board. Yeah, but I think they had six-sided shapes, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, I don't remember. Gotta play it again. <laughs> and then play this one and compare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should. We, I can be the dinosaurs both times. I see. <laughs> I was just about to ask, would you let anyone else try being the dinosaur? I'd let them try. As long as I get to be the dinosaurs often, I'm okay with it. <laughs> We have an honorable mention for best board game as well, Cluedo, the stolen Stegosaurus mystery game, which we talked about in our holiday gift guide. In board game land, Garrett and I stumbled upon this one when we were visiting the Natural History Museum in London. There's, It's called Cluedo, and it's the clue mystery board game, you know, the one where you're solving the murder mystery, but it's with a dinosaur twist. So in the game, someone tried to steal Sophie the Stegosaurus, the one in the museum. 
they failed, but the head and the tail are missing and somewhere in the museum. So you play as one of the six suspects. You have to figure out who stole the fossils, where they hid them, and how they got into the museum, (laughs) which sounds great. So we have ordered our own. We'll be getting it in the next couple of weeks. It costs 30 pounds, British pounds, plus shipping, which varies depending on which country you're coming from, but I think it might be worth it. I also really like the game Clue. (laughs) (laughs) We don't want to just talk about board games, so we've got Best Video Game, which is Jurassic World Evolution this year. In Jurassic World game news, IGN released a new gameplay video of Jurassic World Evolution, and in it you got Jeff Goldblum, who does some narration. In the game, you can choose to focus on entertainment, science, or security. I think you do that by choosing a character, and you work your way up to tougher missions. You can also upgrade your facilities, expand your park, make improvements to your dinosaurs by giving them things like longer lifespans or make them more easygoing. Mm-hmm. And the first four dinosaurs you can add to your park are Struthiomimus, Edmontosaurus, Ceratosaurus, and Triceratops. Cool. Yeah. I really want to play that game. Well, yeah, there's a whole list of other known dinosaurs in the game. They include Ankylosaurus, Apatosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Indominus Rex, Metriacanthosaurus, Spinosaurus, Stegosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, and Velociraptor. And we'll post a link so you can see the full list. They're also, I think, adding to it as they learn more. Yeah, I know they keep releasing little videos of the different dinosaurs. And they're all very Jurassic Parky. So don't expect realism out of this game. There are other similar park builder games coming out that do have realistic dinosaurs, if that's more your cup of tea. But I expect this one at least to be like really fun with lots of sort of quests and missions and things like that, whether or not the dinosaurs are perfect. Well, yeah, I doubt they'd be perfect anyway. You can make improvements to them. (laughs) (laughs) It fits with the whole genetic engineering thing for sure. Yeah. As an honorable mention to the best video game, we also want to recognize Red Dead Redemption 2 for being a mainstream game that incorporates dinosaurs. And we talked about that in our gift guide as well, so I won't go too much into it here. But moving on to best movie release, obviously that was Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom for 2018. And we talked about it at length in many of our episodes this year. (laughs) But if you want to hear a more in-depth review type thing, then you should check out our episode 187. Not to discount other kinds of videos that came out, we've got for best video live action, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and they sponsored a video of parkour scenes from the movie. There's another cool video that came out, and thank you to Stuart who shared this one with us via Facebook. It's really well done, really pretty to watch. It's about five minutes. It was sponsored by Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and it features Devin Supertramp, which I think is a YouTube channel they've got going, doing parkour and acting out scenes from the movie. It was published on June 1st to let you know that you can buy Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom tickets now. And again, their YouTube channel is Devin Supertramp. It looks like they do this for a lot of movies and shows. So in this one, they actually got to film it on the site of the movie, or at least parts of the sites. And pretty much everyone in the video does parkour, including there's people that are in the inflatable T-Rex and Velociraptor costumes, and they're doing parkour as well. It's really impressive. So most of the video is this T-Rex chasing a guy who's dressed like Owen Grady. And there's also uh, somebody dressed kind of like Claire, but she's not in the video too much. At one point... The guy who's dressed like Owen Grady is surrounded by two T-Rexes and someone in the blue Velociraptor suit jumps out from the bush to save him. And then 
one T-Rex keeps chasing after him, after the Owen Grady guy, and they run down the hill the way the dinosaurs in the trailer are running away from the volcano. The T-Rex also ends up kind of searching for the guy in this abandoned warehouse bunker type thing. And then the guy ends up rolling down the hill in an inflatable bubble, which looks like it's supposed to be like the gyrosphere. So he's rolling in one of those big ball things. Yeah, and then the T-Rex is following him, and then they roll off a cliff into water. Oh, no. Some pretty good stunts. (laughs) And they end up on a beach, and then running into a city with a bunch of people, and the T-Rex just keeps chasing this guy, and eventually the guy meets up with the woman dressed like Claire Deering. She's shown in the beginning of the video, and they show her again at the end. And they're in front of the theater, and it says, you know, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, June 22nd. So they basically ran from the volcano all the way to a theater. They did. (laughs) And then the T-Rex catches up. Well, they're trying to get in the theater, and the guy, the ticket person at the theater says, you have to have a ticket, and they don't have it with them. And then the T-Rex catches up, and the ticket guy runs away. And then the T-Rex, the guy in the suit, takes off his suit, and he starts yelling at him, like, why were you running away? (laughs) I was lost. That's why I was following you to get out. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And then he keeps yelling at him, why did you jump off that cliff? <laughs> <laughs> so really well done. Even though I have explained the entire video, I still recommend watching it. If for anything, the parkour tricks. There is also a really great animated video. So our best video animated for 2018 is a Jurassic Park parody with other prehistoric creatures. On a lighter note, thanks to Mitchell who shared this video with us. It's a two-minute video parody video called Jurassic Park in Different Eras, and it's animated scenes from Jurassic Park. So the first one's the Devonian era, and it's the scene where they first see the dinosaurs in the park. Ellie turns her head, and it, and instead of seeing a Brachiosaurus, she sees something that looks like a Tiktaalik. Yeah, one of those little amphibians turning into a land animal early phases. (laughs) Yeah. They also have the pre-Cambian park, and there's the scene with the water, the glass, and the car, and it's moving, and and he runs out of the car, and he says, early single-cellular protus, run. They may also possibly be early jellyfish. Scientists are undecided. (laughs) So uh, a few scenes like that, and it kind of... Talks about, well, maybe the movie is fine as it is. I wonder if that's if they started with the idea that it's called Jurassic Park, but a lot of the animals in it aren't from the Jurassic, and then think like, well, what if they went to an even more extreme? <laughs> oh, even well, they, they end with Jurassic Park in Jurassic Park with velociraptors, and then they say, wait a minute, this is Jurassic Park, but velociraptors are from the Cretaceous, so mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that could be, you're right, though, it could be how they started. And they talk about, oh, no, the velociraptors should be half the size and have feathers and all this stuff. And then they talk about, and the T-Rex, that's right, that's from the Jurassic, even though it's not, it's from the Cretaceous. That's from even later in the Cretaceous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a joke, too. But it says, and you're supposed to be a scavenger, not a predator, and this is as the T-Rex is eating Dr. Alan Grant, so. <laughs> Which is also not really true. Well, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> parody. So <laughs> It's an enjoyable watch. I also want to add, as an honorable mention for Best Video Animated, the video of (laughs) Jurassic Park in heels. This one was great. Somebody put together clips from Jurassic Park. I think it was just the original. And it's got all the characters, including the dinosaurs, wearing high heels. Mm. It's only 21 seconds long, but 
I really enjoyed watching it, and it's very easy to watch on loop. You can see Brachiosaurus in these giant zebra-striped heels. There's compies in small yellow heels, and then it ends with T-Rex in yellow polka dot heels, and it's roaring as the Jurassic Park banner falls on her, you know, that end scene. Oh, is this just a play on the fact that they're all female dinosaurs? Is that what they're going for? No, because the male characters in the movie are also wearing heels. Oh, even the humans? Yeah, all the humans. Why did they do this? Just for fun. (laughs) For laughs. (laughs) Just for the lulls? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And it worked. (laughs) It's gotten a lot of views. That's good. Just realized all of our best videos are Jurassic Park related. Well, it was a big year. It was. (laughs) 25th anniversary plus Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. They pretty much flooded the video market. And our last best of for 2018 is a story about how dinosaurs brought people together. And it's a bittersweet story, but it is nice to see people coming together this way. And then last, just want to end, maybe some of you have heard about the recent campfire in California where many families lost their homes. And in one case, there's a four-year-old, Riley Wooten, who also lost his dinosaur collection. So his aunt posted on Facebook about it and asked for donations. And now Riley has about 100 dinosaurs. Oh. And people also sent dinosaur blankets and pillows and dinosaur books. So very sweet. And now that Riley set, the family's encouraging people to pay it forward, do something nice for someone else who was affected by the fire. That's really nice. Yeah. So that wraps up all of our favorite stories, best stories from 2018. Hope you enjoyed them as much as we did. There's a lot of good stuff to choose from this year. Mm-hmm. We say that every year. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Thecodontosaurus, which was a request from Casper Z2 and Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was a sauropodomorph that lived in the Triassic in what is now England, and it was small and bipedal. It was about 3.9 feet or 1.2 meters long and weighed about 24 pounds or 11 kilograms. The largest Thecodontosaurus was estimated to be 8.2 feet or 2.5 meters long. It had a short neck and a large skull with large eyes, and the front limbs were shorter than the hind limbs. The hands were long and narrow, and it had a large claw on each, and there were five digits on the hands and the feet. The tail was also longer than the rest of the body, and it had powerful back legs so it could reach low-hanging tree branches. It's also possible that Thecodontosaurus could have swum? Swam? (laughs) Could have done either, depending on which is grammatically correct. (laughs) Yes. It used its tail as a rudder and had had strong limbs for swimming, potentially. Thecodontosaurus lived on a tropical island, and it was herbivorous. It had serrated leaf-shaped teeth, and these sharp teeth could tear up leaves. 
It was originally thought to be carnivorous. The name Thecodontosaurus means socket tooth lizard. It was found in 1834 at the Durdham Down Quarry, and it was originally described and named in 1836. So it's one of the first dinosaurs discovered. It's the fourth or fifth named dinosaur, though dinosauria as a concept didn't exist until 1842. Thecodontosaurus was at first thought to be this weird reptile that was similar to both lizards and crocodiles. The quarry workers found quote-unquote saurian animal remains in Bristol's limestone quarries, and they took some bones to the Bristol Institution for the Advancement of Science, Literature, and Arts so that Samuel Stutchbury could see them. He wasn't there at the time, so his colleague Henry Riley took a look, and then when Stutchbury came back, he asked for more specimens. David Williams, who was a country parson and geologist, was also excited about these, so there was a race between Williams and Stutchbury and Riley to describe the bones. Stutchbury and Williams didn't trust each other. Seems to be a theme back then. <laughs> Williams thought that Stutchbury was selfish in trying to get all the fossils to the Bristol Institution, and Stutchbury thought that Williams was trying to poach fossils. They both worked on descriptions of the dinosaur, but Williams didn't have as much fossil material as Riley and Stutchbury, so he didn't try to turn his report back in 1835 into a legitimate description of the animal. And Riley and Stutchbury named Thecodontosaurus and gave a short description in a talk in 1836 and then finished their paper in 1838 and published in 1840. That was a while before the Bone Wars. Like the original Bone Wars. <laughs> yeah. The name Thecodontosaurus refers to the roots of the teeth not being fused with the jawbone, but instead in separate tooth sockets, like modern lizards. Originally, Riley and Stutchbury thought that it was a member of Squamata, which includes lizards and snakes. Owen, Richard Owen, did not consider it to be a dinosaur. He assigned it to Thecodontia in 1865. Then in 1870, Thomas Huxley found that it was a dinosaur, though he thought it was a Scolidosauridae. Modern analysis is still not conclusive. Sometimes it's seen as a basal sauropodomorph or may have come before the prosauropod-sauropod split. There's only one valid species, the type species, Thecodontosaurus antiquus, though many other species have been named, as you can imagine, from the 1840s. Well, and later. The species was named in 1843 by John Morris in his catalog of British fossils, and the species name Antiquus means ancient in Latin. The holotype consists of a lower jaw, and it was actually destroyed in World War II in November 1940 during the Bristol Blitz. Some bones survived. 184 are now part of the Bristol City Museum and Art Gallery, and more fossils were later found near Bristol at Titherington. There's about 245 fragmentary specimens currently known. And Peter Dalton assigned another lower jaw as the neotype back in 1985. There have been a lot of misassigned species, some that are now considered to be other genera and some that are now considered to be dubious. Riley and Stutchbury also found some carnivore teeth that they named Paleosaurus cylindridon and Paleosaurus platydon. In the late 1800s, there was a theory that they were from carnivorous prosauropods with similar bodies to Thecodontosaurus, but with teeth that could slice. Arthur Smith Woodward named Thecodontosaurus platydon in 1890 based on this, and Frederick von Huhn named Thecodontosaurus cylindridon in 1908, but now they're both not considered to be valid. Once, Thecodontosaurus fossils were mistakenly described as a different genus. In 1891, Harry Govier-Seeley named Argosaurus mcgillivrayi, and he thought that those fossils were found in 1844 and that they came from the northeast coast of Australia. But in 1999, it was found that Riley and Stutchbury probably sent those bones to the British Museum of Natural History and were mislabeled. In 1906, Frederick von Huhn said that they were similar to Thecodontosaurus and named the species Thecodontosaurus mcgillivrayi. 
but now it's considered to be a junior synonym of Thecodontosaurus antiquus. That's good. That one's easier to say. Yes. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. So Thecodontosaurus was part of the Bristol Dinosaur Project, which for about four years, thousands of volunteers helped gather and preserve its fossils. So there was a lot of lab research and outreach work, which might explain why there's so many bones. And our fun fact is another best of entry. This one's from episode 180. And our fun fact of the day is about my favorite group of dinosaurs, Thyria forans. And I had been wondering, you've got stegosaurs and you've got ankylosaurs. And when you combine them, they are both Thyria forans. That's kind of the common ancestor is the Thyria foran group. And it makes you wonder, hey, stegosaurs have these big plates. Ankylosaurs have this armor. Is there anything in common between the armor and the plates? And it turns out, yes, there is. So both the Stegosaurus plates and Ankylosaurus armor are both osteoderms. It just turns out that the Stegosaurus plates are kind of these highly modified osteoderms. The osteoderms on Ankylosaurus are much more common. You see them in crocodiles and even some sauropods and things like that, just sort of low body armor, little bumps. And then on Stegosaurus, they've grown <laughs> like straight up, really narrow, very strange looking for osteoderms but still just osteoderms. And on the inside, they're kind of spongy so that there's lots of space for blood vessels. So does that mean because there's talk that maybe stegosaurs could blush or change the color of its, of its plates, could ankylosaurs blush or change the color of its armor? Maybe. I think that would probably be based on the covering over the surface of it. And so that would depend on what kind of fleshy material is on the outside. I'm guessing on stegosaurus... It might be a little bit more likely just because the plates wouldn't be that effective of armor and they look a little bit more like a display structure than the armor on Ankylosaurus. And on the Ankylosaurus, I should say on the Notosaur, also known as Borealopelta, we saw some keratin sheaths over the surface of some of its armor. And I don't think any animal could ever make keratin blush. So that one's probably not going to blush, but we don't really know exactly what's over the Stegosaur plates. If it's keratin, then it might not be able to blush. But then again, we have keratin over, like our fingernails are made out of it. So you can see skin underneath that if it's real thin. So if they had something similar, <laughs> Sabrina's shivering, <laughs> then maybe they could do some sort of display. It's hard to say. All right. And with that last best of tidbit, we hope you enjoyed our best of 2018 episode, plus a new dinosaur of the day. And we look forward to sharing more dinosaur news with you this year in 2019. Thanks again, and until next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.